check. Uh, it's feeling a little post-adrenalized, so might start crying. Kind of weird processing what's going on. Okay, so bear with me on that. Um, you just don't expect that on New Year's morning. Kind of come in, you're kind of excited because we're all going to make resolutions, right? We're going to re- resolve to read our Bibles more. We're going to resolve to pray more. We're going to resolve to lose weight. And we're going to resolve to work out. And, uh, and we're confronted with the fact that we are temporal beings. And, uh, and we sing songs that God is good because he is. And there's a day coming when all the tears and sorrow and pain are going to be wiped away. And this book contains the word of God that we need. And in Luke 15, Jesus said in verse 11, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, kissed him. The son said to his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not, no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, his sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Lost and found seem a whole lot more significant certain moments, life and death seem a whole lot closer, more tangible when something like this happens. But this isn't, this isn't unusual. This is, this is life in this fallen world. This is life with uh, a world in rebellion against God and a a world that is cursed by God's just commandment. And we need a Savior. We need a Savior. Every one of us. You know, one of the things Jesus makes clear in this story is that apart from Him, we're all lost. Whether our lostness looks younger brother-ish, you know, foolish, immoral, blatantly rebellious, or whether our lostness looks very proper, very religious, very upright, but cold-hearted and self-righteous. Whether we tend to one extreme or the other, we're all lost. And... Jesus tells this glorious story about himself. That he's the one who seek, came to seek and save the lost. You ask the question, okay, you're lost. How do you get found? And Jesus makes it very clear in this story that he's the issue. He is the issue. I, kind of, I want to point that out today. It's vital that we see that he's the issue. You know, he told this story because the religious leaders of the day were mad at him. They were angry at him. They did not get him. They didn't understand what he was doing, welcoming, teaching, eating with all this immoral riffraff, as the Pharisees and teachers of the law would have described them. And so Jesus tells this story He's not just trying to change their minds about lostness, about who's lost, what it really means to be lost, and how God feels about lost people. But he's told this story ultimately to change their minds, to challenge them to change their minds about him. He wanted them to see that they needed him just as much as the others 
And I want to explain why I say that. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Jesus tells three stories here, okay? So the one about the lost sons that Mark just read, that's the third. But there's two others. And these stories, all, they all have several things in common. And if you've been here as we've read through these, you've probably picked up on some of the similarities. In each story, something highly valued gets lost. So uh, a sheep gets lost, a coin gets lost and a son. And then also in all three stories, the person who lost something gets it back. So the shepherd gets a sheep back, the woman gets her coin back, and the father gets a son back. And then the third thing that all the stories have in common is this huge celebration. And the person who found what they had lost invites everybody to join in their celebration. So the, the shepherd celebrates his return of his sheep, and the woman celebrates the return of her coin, and the father celebrates the return of his son. So all these things are in common. But, but there's a noticeable difference between the first two stories and the third. Did you pick up on it? Have you seen it? In the first two stories, somebody searches diligently until what's lost is found. So the shepherd leaves 99 and, and goes out and looks for the one. And he looks and looks and looks until he finds that one. The woman stops whatever else she was doing and turns her house upside down, sweeps carefully until she finds that lost coin. But in the third story, nobody goes looking for the lost son. And you can't help but notice it. It's, it's, it's different. And it forces you to ask, why? Why didn't anybody go? Well, let's think about it. Who could have gone? The father? No. Because the younger son left his father and wanted to get as far away from his father as he could. So it would have been pointless for the father to go. Well, who then? The older brother. The older brother. Who should have known from the first book in the Bible where God told an older brother, an angry, resentful older brother, basically, you are your brother's keeper. But he didn't go. But isn't Jesus saying he should have cared that because lost people matter to God, which is really one of the big points of the stories, because lost people matter to God, the older brother should have cared. Someone should have cared. Someone should have gone. And by telling, this, by telling the stories this way, Jesus has raised a crucial question. Who? Who is the one? Who is the one who will do the job of a true older brother who will seek lost people and find them and pay the price to bring them home to God? Who is that? And the answer Jesus is giving, above and beyond all the other lessons that we can pull out of these stories, The lesson that Jesus, the answer Jesus is giving is 
I am. I'm that one. I'm the one who came to seek and save the lost. I'm the one who will pay the price to care for these, to care for lost people and bring them home to God. See, the answer Jesus is giving to us, to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law, is I'm the issue. God wants lost people found, and he sent me to find them. Jesus is the one who rescues us from our lostness. Trusting him, trusting the payment he made on the cross, that's how we experience being found. Now the question that I want us to think about today, which I think is totally relevant in light of it being a new year, and as we think about our lives and our purpose in life and our purpose as a church, the question for us is once we get that, once we get that Jesus is the issue, how do we help other people get that? Because God still cares about all the lost. All the lost. He doesn't just care about the lost who managed to squeeze themselves into here this morning. He cares about all the lost. How do we help people see that? How do we help people see that because we're lost and because our lostness creates all the misery there is in the world, our lostness separates us from God, who is the only source of life and wholeness and justice and mercy. Because our lostness condemns us to eternal misery, how do we help people see that Jesus is the one and only one they need? So what I want to do is just point out a couple of things from the story I mean, there are a lot of things we could say about this. How do we help people see Jesus is the one they need? This certainly isn't all of them, but I think these are foundational. These are foundational. These are, these are essentials. These, coming out of this story, help us see how to put this story into practice. You know, we've studied it for several weeks now, so what? What are we going to do with it? Well, let's put it into practice. What would that look like? What would it look like if we wanted to help people get what Jesus has taught us here? How do we help people see he's the one they need? Okay, two things. First, we have to admit our own lostness. That's not new. We've talked about that a little bit, but this is absolutely critical. We've got to get real about our own lostness. Whether it's the younger brother type, foolish, immoral, lostness, or whether it's the older brother type of hard-hearted self-righteousness, we have to admit that we are lost without Jesus if we're ever going to point anyone else to him. And the key word in, in all these stories here for this, to see this, is the word repent. Chapter 15, verse 7. I tell you this, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And verse 10, the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, in order to enter the celebration, God's celebration, in order to lead other people into the celebration, we have to repent. What does that mean? Well, it's a religious word, of course. 
But what it means is simple. It means to turn around because you're going the wrong way. So turn around. It's like, it's, it's exactly what the younger son did. You know, he was running away from his father, trying to get as far away from his father as possible, ended up in the pigsty, realized, this ain't working. I think I'll turn around. And he did. And he went back to his father. And it's exactly what the older son needed to do. You know, instead of being out there in the cold, sulking, feeling so sorry for himself, so proud of his own achievements, to just turn away from that junk and go in and be with the Father and celebrate. And the really crucial thing to see here about repentance is admitting we're not lost because we just sort of accidentally made a wrong turn. You know, it's not as if we, we misread the GPS and just made a wrong turn. Oh, it says southwest. I thought it meant southeast. It's not that. We're lost because we chose to go the wrong way. God's GPS said, go this way, and we said, no. I don't want to go that way. I want to go this way because I think I know better. And we may not have thought it all through that way, but that's basically what happens. So we are the foolish younger brother who told his dad, basically, I can't be happy with you. I've got to get as far away from you as I can. And we are that older, arrogant brother who decided he could not trust his father to give him what was good. So he decided instead to trust in his own goodness, to trust in his own better judgment, to trust in his own achievements. And the point is, we did not accidentally end up on the throne of our own lives. We didn't just end up, accidentally get there. We staged a coup. And we climbed up on the throne and said, I am Lord of my life. Our lostness is our own fault. Have you admitted that yet? It's not about how many times you come to church. It's not about how many verses in the Bible you read. It's not about how many good deeds you do. Have you come to terms with your own lostness? Have you admitted it? Because until you do, and again, whether it's the younger brother kind of lostness or the older brother kind of lostness or whatever it looks like, until you realize that you've staged the coup to put yourself on the throne of your own life and make your own decisions, until we do that, until we are convinced that we absolutely need Jesus to rescue us, we will never, ever be able to influence anyone else to trust him. It's got to start there. So, admit our lostness, and then the other thing to help people see they need Jesus is avoid older brother-itis. <laughs> avoid older brother-itis. You may not be familiar with this disease. That's just my term for this spiritual affliction that causes us to resemble 
the older brother in this story. And it is a crippling disease. And it absolutely will ruin a church. Because it will turn a church from being a group of warm and loving and joyful and grateful, a grateful group of sinners saved by grace. And it'll turn them, it'll change them into an uninviting, complaining, self-focused, condemning group of self-righteous Pharisees. We don't want to be that. But we're all at risk. We're all at risk of catching this disease. And if you're sitting there thinking, not me, I'm immune, you've already got it. You're already infected. See, there's this tendency we all have. Once we have experienced the saving, rescuing mercy of God in Jesus Christ, once we've experienced that, there is this tendency then to begin to focus and make it all about our performance instead of about His grace. When we make it about our performance instead of his grace. And so we, we, we get preoccupied with how, how good of a job am I doing here? How, how well am I following his directions? How hard am I trying? And how bad do I feel when I fail? Because, you know, I got to feel really, really bad. And, and then how are we doing compared to other people? And, you know, as we learn more and more how life is meant to be lived, how life should be lived, we begin to get a little impatient with people who aren't living that way. And we look at them and we think, what is wrong with them? What is wrong with people? Don't you think that sometimes during the day? You hear the news and you go, what is wrong with people? What is the matter with them? Like we don't know. They're lost. But we say, well, are they rebellious? Are they just stupid? What? And then if we're doing a fairly decent job, this is when it gets really dangerous, when we're doing a fairly decent job of living the way we're supposed to or we think we are, then we begin to expect that God will bless us because of how hard we're trying. We expect him to bless us. And if he doesn't bless us exactly the way we want him to, or if, if something bad happens, then we get really upset. And the problem is, more and more, we begin to resemble the older brother in this story, who's not the hero, if you didn't know that yet. And we start to look like him, and, and he looks a lot like the Pharisees. You know something about those Pharisees? Nobody went to them. Nobody went to them for help in finding their way home to God. So how do we avoid this, older brother-itis? Washing our hands with sanitizer will not do it. 
I think basically what we've got to do is we've got to, we've got to look at this older brother. We've got to look at how he thinks. We've got to look at how he acts. We've got to look what his attitude is. And we just say, okay, the opposite. Let's, let's do the opposite. So let me give you a couple of specifics. For one thing, refuse to believe. Refuse to believe that you can earn God's favor or deserve his blessing. Just refuse to believe that. Anytime you find yourself starting to think that way, we start thinking that God should bless us because of our performance, then we're, uh, our thinking's messed up. You know something? God doesn't even want you to try. God does not want you even to try to earn his favor or deserve his blessing. Because that's completely contrary to how he wants us to live. Do you know what that is? Do you know how he wants us to live? One way and one way only. By faith in his grace. That's it. By faith in his grace. Let me show you. Several places we could look at. I'll just mention a few. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's an interesting word. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It doesn't say without performance. It doesn't say without flawless living. It says without faith. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, why does God reward those who earnestly seek him? It's not because of what they have done. It's because of who he is. He is a rewarder. The emphasis is on him. We must believe that he exists. We must believe that he rewards. We trust in his goodness, not in our performance. Notice what it says we seek. He rewards those who diligently seek him. We seek him. We don't seek a good grade. Romans 9.32, here's another place. Paul here is talking about the uh, people of Israel who tried to achieve being right with God. They tried to achieve righteousness, and they did not achieve it. And so 9.32 says, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. In other words, they pursued righteousness. They pursued being right with God as if it depended on their performance instead of on God's undeserved favor in Jesus Christ. One more place, Romans 1.5. Here the Apostle Paul is talking about his mission in life, and he says, we receive grace and apostleship to bring about, key phrase, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Well, what is the obedience of faith? This is it. It means obeying God because you trust him. Obeying God because you trust him. You trust him to be wise. You trust him to be gracious to you. You trust him to be good to you in Jesus Christ. You obey him because you trust him. What it doesn't mean is obeying him because you think you can obtain his favor if your performance is good enough. You see the difference? Because it's massive. It's huge. Faith puts the focus on Jesus. It puts the focus on his goodness, 
his performance, his righteousness, his wisdom. We follow his rules. Why? Not because we think we'll somehow deserve his blessing if we perform well enough. That's not why we keep his rules. That's not the obedience of faith. We keep his rules because he's good. He says, live this way, and we go, well, okay. I trust you. You're good. You're wise. You know what's best. What is the real problem when somebody's not obeying God? What is the real problem? The problem isn't, is the problem that they're not good enough? Nobody's good enough. That's not the problem. The problem is they don't trust God. So the solution, the solution is not to try harder to keep the rules. The solution is to look at Jesus and trust him more because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because of what he's promised to do. It's a totally different reason for doing what he says. He's the focus of faith. Now, the other, the other side of it is, uh, the other end, the opposite, is older brotheritis, which puts the focus squarely on us and our performance, how hard we try, what we deserve or don't deserve. Okay, Just don't. Refuse to think that way. Refuse to believe that. Refuse to focus on your merit. Uh, this is where we tend to go, but we can't go there. And it's so common. Talk to people all the time. And they're convinced that they don't deserve anything because, you know, they don't deserve any, anything good from God because of their merit or lack of, or it's the other extreme. And it, in one way or other, it's all about us and our performance. And that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. If you're not keeping his rules, you're the one that's going to hurt. And the problem is not that you're not trying hard enough. The problem is you don't trust God enough. You don't trust him to be good to you. So we don't want to put the focus. Now, the other thing we shouldn't do that the older brother did is don't look down on sinners. Don't look down on sinners the way the older brother looked down on his younger brother. I mean, he thought he was so superior to his younger foolish sibling. He thought he was so superior. He, he, he just told himself he would never, ever do anything like that. In fact, he won't even call him his brother. He just despises him. He says to his father, well, this son of yours. He won't even say my brother. Can't bring himself to do that. And what is so ironic and what is so pathetic is that in his heart, he is guilty of the very same sin as his younger brother. The sin of not trusting, not loving, not honoring his father. It's the same sin. He was just as much in need of forgiveness for dishonoring his father as his younger brother was. See, his heart, his heart was a problem. He didn't love his dad. He didn't trust his dad. He didn't honor his dad. And you don't fix a heart that doesn't trust, honor, love God by keeping rules. It doesn't work. So, don't look down. If you today, 
right where you're at, sitting there looking at me. If you today know the right way to live, if you know the right way to live, and you want to live that way, because you trust God, there's only one explanation for that. You have so much to be grateful for, and you have absolutely nothing to be proud about. If you know the right way to live and you want to live that way, the only explanation for that is that you have been touched by the grace of God. That's the only reason. We have absolutely no reason for thinking ourselves superior to other sinners. Because if we get it, we get it by the grace of God. Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. You know what one word I think just sums it all up? It's the word humility. Humility. The younger son showed humility when he realized he was an idiot and needed to go home. And I love the way Jesus says in verse 20. It doesn't say he went back home. Did you see what it says? He went back to his father. I love that. The emphasis is on the relationship. But that's humility. To admit he was wrong. The older brother, what he lacked was humility. He lacked the humility. He just couldn't admit that he was wrong, that he was hard-hearted, that he was uh, dishonoring to his father. He couldn't admit it. And so he's outside, missing it. Humility makes all the difference. Now, if you're sitting there going, that's right. That's right. Everybody needs to be humble like me. If you're humble, don't be proud about it. Because here's the deal. Humility is not a work. Humility does not earn you God's favor. Humility doesn't win us God's approval. You know what humility is? It's admitting we don't deserve his approval. We don't deserve his forgiveness. We don't deserve his acceptance. That's what humility is. What do you have to be proud about? That's right, I'm not good enough for God. Humility is essential if we're going to point people to Jesus. Proud people just don't point people to Jesus. Humility to admit our sin, humility to care about their lostness, because you know what, without Jesus, we're just as lost. We know what it means to be lost. What do we have to be proud about? To admit our lostness, not despising lost people, and then humility to give all the glory, all of the attention, all of the focus, all of the admiration, give it all to our true older brother, Jesus Christ, who is the one who came to seek and save the lost by dying for us. 1 Peter 5.5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, look at this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. May we be a humble people who are constantly receiving and sharing the grace of God. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you for revealing your heart to us in this story. Thank you for showing us why Jesus came to seek and save lost people like us. Lord, will you will you captivate us? Will you change us? Will you transform us by this vision of Jesus? seeking and saving the lost. And may we all come to that place of admitting our lostness and putting our trust in Jesus alone. And once we've done that, give ourselves to the task of pointing others to this wonderful, amazing, glorious Savior. that the lost you care about will experience the joy of coming home. We pray in Jesus' name.